So I think we should get underway and uh, keep to the, the times. Thank you very much for joining me for this uh, uh, talk and Q&A time which will follow. Uh, thanks uh, to Al uh, who's running the uh, technology in the background for us and uh, who will be collating the, the questions for me. Yeah, you can type them into the Q&A box as we go uh, but I won't be taking questions uh, during the talk. We'll save them till after. Uh, because we're recording the talk for the forum and so on, so that needs uh, uh, editing, etc. Uh, I'm Peter S. Williams. Uh, I'm a part-time lecturer at NLA University in Norway, although I'm based uh, most of my time here in England. Uh, and you can see uh, various uh, info about me there. And uh, I direct you to my website at peterswilliams.com to find uh, not only uh, more about me, should you wish to, uh, but uh, more importantly, uh, various uh, free resources, papers, my podcast channel, YouTube channel, etc. Uh, so we're here to look at the, the subject of learning about Jesus with the so-called New Atheists, which I hope was a, a title that would pique people's interest. Uh, I recently uh, published a, a big thick book uh, about what the New Atheists say about Jesus uh, called Getting at Jesus, a comprehensive critique of neo-atheist nonsense about the Jesus of history. And uh, this talk is going to be drawn from material from that book from the beginning of the book and right at the end of the book uh, uh, I will start off with uh, a critique of the approach to uh, the historical Jesus that the New Atheists take, but then we'll look at a number of things uh, that uh, individual New Atheists say, uh, with which uh, I, as a Christian and a scholar, can agree with them uh, about the historical Jesus, uh, and that it is useful to be able to point to when talking to uh, people about Jesus that there are things about the historical Jesus that even the sort of hyper-skeptical new atheists uh, will uh, individually admit. Uh, so the new atheists, of, of course, are a movement that started right at the beginning of this uh, millennia, uh, and they're that group of atheists who uh, Gary Wolf uh, coined the name the new atheism uh, in an article in Wired magazine, and uh, he described them th this way. He said the new atheists condemn not just belief in God, but respect for uh, belief in God. In in their view, religion's not only wrong, not only an intellectual mistake, but it's it's evil. Uh, and they uh, include uh, such figures as uh, American author Sam Harris, philosopher Daniel Dennett here, uh, or the uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, probably one of the most famous atheists in the world, uh, an emeritus professor at Oxford University in the UK and his uh, best-selling uh, book, The God Delusion, and recently he's written a book aimed at the young adult audience called Outgrowing God that I'm uh, just handed in a manuscript to my, my publisher uh, of a book uh, that's a direct response to Dawkins' new book, Outgrowing God. Uh, so I've done uh, quite a bit of interaction with these folks. Let's start off by looking at this issue of, uh, you might have heard of the phrase like the, the Jesus of faith, versus the Christ of history. Here's uh, atheist Philip Pullman. He's not one of the, the new atheists. Uh, let's call him a, a classical atheist, say. 
he's uh, a British uh, novelist and he says Jesus was a great storyteller to invent the story about the Good Samaritan you hear it once you never forget it you tell it to someone else still has the same effect the man was a genius of storytelling if nothing else and I find this very interesting because here is Pullman as an atheist accepting some of the historical record about Jesus about his existence about uh, part of his ethical teaching and life whilst rejecting that same historical record about Jesus when it comes to anything supernatural and when it comes to anything that won't fit within his atheistic world view but of course if you just looked at this at a purely historical level I mean the parable of the Good Samaritan is something that appears in uh, the second hand report of one gospel it's in Luke chapter 10 that was written at best perhaps 30 years after the event that gospel nevertheless 60% um, of the the liberal Jesus seminar fellows rated this saying of Jesus uh, as red that is authentic and a further 29% rated it uh, pink that is probably authentic uh, in their uh, way of reviewing the uh, authenticity of the gospel stories so here is Pullman accepting something about Jesus that's only related in, in, in one second-hand report and rejecting other things that are uh, supported by a lot more historical uh, evidence uh, but which don't fit his worldview. So here we have a, a table of the, the miracles of Jesus that appear in more than one gospel. Uh, right at the top there is the feeding of the 5,000 which uh, is a miracle that appears in all four of the Gospels. So we can see here I've highlighted that every category of miracle if you like, nature miracles, healing miracles, exorcism, uh, reviving people from the dead, every category of miracle performed by Jesus is attested by multiple uh, early that is first century sources here and historians like getting multiple uh, sources and early sources of information for things uh, even specific miracles are attested by multiple early and indeed uh, independent sources we look at those that are mentioned by John's Gospel and the so-called synoptic Gospels uh, we could also dig behind the Gospels to the, the sources uh, that the Gospels uh, use. The outline of the story of Jesus' death and resurrection can be established from the multiple independent and early testimonies of the very early creed in the letter of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, uh, the passion narrative in Mark 15 to 16, which is sought to depend upon a pre-Markan passion narrative, Peter's Pentecost sermon recorded in Acts 2 and an early sermon of Paul recorded in Acts 13. Uh, it's interesting to note that of the speeches in Acts, uh, Bar Ehrman, a sceptical New Testament scholar, comments that the speeches in Acts are particularly notable because they are in many instances based on oral traditions. These speeches incorporate material from the traditions about Jesus that existed long before Luke put pen uh, to papyrus 
and I review a lot of this material again in my uh, book Getting at Jesus or uh, a recent debate book I took part in called uh, Resurrection, Faith or Fact. Uh, here we have uh, four different sources there outlining the story about Jesus' death, burial, raising and, and appearances after his resurrection. Uh, we even have multiple first century sources for various resurrection appearances of uh, Jesus uh, tabulated here. We've got multiple independent sources for at least two individual and three group uh, appearances of the risen Jesus for example. So that's just a brief review of some of the historical evidence to make the point that some of the the, the sort of supernatural baggage if you like of the Gospels is supported by a lot more historical evidence than some of the uh, ethical teaching say that's accepted by atheists like uh, Philip Pullman. So what's really going on here? Well as I've suggested it's really about a world view. Here's a New Testament scholar Helen Bond talking about the modern academic study of the historical Jesus she says only really began in the wake of the 18th century enlightenment with its rejection of a God who intervenes in history in supernatural ways. The emergence of historical criticism in the 19th century allowed distinctions to be made between the Christ of faith and the Jesus of history. Distinctions that have underpinned the quest for the historical Jesus ever since. Well, of course, the Enlightenment wasn't a, a monolithic anti-God movement. Uh, the rejection of God who intervenes in history does not allow the distinction between the Christ of faith and the Jesus of history. That rejection requires the distinction, and it requires that distinction completely regardless of the historical evidence. So that modern academic study of the historical Jesus as described by Bond, we could say, is a, a search for a Jesus that's consistent with an, an atheistic, a metaphysically naturalistic worldview. And that means that the Jesus happily acknowledged by many atheists and agnostic scholars is a Jesus of faith, uh, an understanding of Jesus shaped by their faith in the naturalistic worldview rather than being a Jesus of history strictly speaking that is an understanding of Jesus produced by following the historical evidence wherever it seems to point. There are three basic approaches to drawing this this line of demarcation between the Jesus of history on the one hand the Christ of faith on the other uh, although these approaches can be mixed. Some people take a, a metaphysical approach where they say uh, supernatural things, miracles in particular, just can't happen. Or they might take a, a kind of an approach that's about our knowledge, our epistemology, how we know things. And they might say that miracles, even if they can happen, can't be known to have happened. And or they take a definitional approach. Some scholars just say that, well, miracles can't be mentioned within history as a subject, just as a matter of definition. Well, let's look at these three approaches in turn. Here's the French neo-atheist Michel Onfray 
he asserts that we should approach any a supposedly holy book from he says a standpoint hostile to belief in revelation and he assumes that the answer to his rhetorical question well who would have done the revealing is of course well nobody because there's no god to do the revealing but if we took that approach to purportedly holy books like the Bible, uh, we'd better not approach, say, the New Testament portion of the Bible demanding evidence for its status as a revelation from God. Because doing that, of course, would inc involve us in a, a question-begging double standard. Uh, as J.P. Morland and William Lane Craig point out, only to the extent that one has good grounds for believing atheism to be true could one be rationally justified in denying the possibility of miracles. Uh, indeed, uh, you could uh, be an atheist who says, I think it's, it's probably likely that there's no God, but you still have to admit the possibility of miracles, just so long as you weren't saying it's absolutely certain that there's no God you'd have to leave room for the possibility of miracles and then really what you'd have to focus on is the question of is there good enough evidence to believe a miracle has ever happened which gets us to the issue of the epistemology of, of how would we know can we know that miracles have happened here's uh, new atheist philosopher daniel dennett saying in the end there is no true religion in the factual sense for there is no good evidence supporting their truth claims it, it looks like his objection is an evidential objection he's kind of making a request for evidence that he thinks christians just don't have but then it also says historical arguments cannot be introduced into serious investigation of, of gods since they are manifestly question begging um, but no that's not true it's just not true actually it's dennett who's begging the question against revelation by invoking what he calls the scientific method with its assumption of no miracles right uh, I guess Dennett is thinking you have to believe that there is a God before you can believe that there's a revelation from God. But that's not true. You could believe that it's possible that there's a God or that, you know, there's there's a good chance that there might be a God, or even though you don't believe in one, or even if you believe that there probably isn't one. But that would still leave room for there being enough evidence to convince you, convince you that a miraculous revelation from God has happened which would change your mind about the god issue right here's richard dawkins criticizing religious faith as requiring blind trust in the absence of evidence even in the teeth of evidence i he seems to be saying that the problem here again is is simply the lack of evidence for miracles he seems to be requesting uh, evidence uh, and assuming that there isn't going to be any good evidence forthcoming. But again, Dawkins asserts that the 19th century is the last time when it was possible for an educated person to admit to believing in miracles without embarrassment. Um, I.e., he seems to be saying, well, of course, I won't 
believe in evidence for miracles. You wouldn't catch me doing anything as embarrassing as that. Sort of begging the question against the issue again. This is a, a double standard. Or neo-atheist Christopher Hitchens wrote that the Scottish Enlightenment philosopher David Hume uh, quote, wrote the last word on the subject of miracles, uh, as if no philosopher since uh, David Hume has written on the topic or said anything significant about it. Well, as William Lane Craig reports, uh, the fallaciousness, the falsity of Hume's reasoning has been recognised by the majority of philosophers writing on the subject today. And no, that's not just the majority of Christian philosophers or the majority of philosophers who believe in God, that's the majority of philosophers who write on the topic. Finally, some folks take this definitional approach of just saying, okay, we're doing history and within history, you're not allowed to mention miracles. Uh, you might personally believe that they happened and so on, but you can't mention them within history just by definition of that subject. So, for example, uh, to go back to an older uh, voice in the liberal tradition here, uh, Albert Schweitzer uh, said the exclusion of miracle from our view of history has been universally recognised as a principle of criticism, so that miracle no longer concerns the historian, either positively or negatively. Uh, the Jesus Seminar take this same approach thereby guaranteeing, simply by definition, that miraculous explanations are non-historical, again, irrespective of the evidence, irrespective of the facts. Well, if people are minded to take that definitional approach to history as a subject, I'm minded to say, well, let me introduce you to a new subject that I'm going to call what happened in the past studies, right? Uh, atheist philosopher of science, Bradley Monton, uh, talking uh, about a similar rule that some people apply to science. We can broaden his point to talk about the definition of history here as well. He says if science or history really is permanently committed to a methodological naturalism, a naturalism that says we're just, just not going to talk about or consider uh, miracles and the supernatural. It follows that the aim of science or the aim of history is not generating true theories or true descriptions of the past. Instead, the aim of science or history would be something like this, generating the best theories that can be formulated subject to the restriction that the theories are naturalistic. So, Monton argues that science is better off without being shackled, shackled to methodological naturalism, without being tied to uh, this kind of rule, this kind of definition. And I think the same uh, should be said for history as well. So, as atheist Thomas Nagel says, a purely semantic, a purely definitional classification of of a hypothesis, of an idea or its denial as belonging or not to science or belonging or not to history is of limited interest to someone who wants to know whether the hypothesis is true or false. Uh, and as Monten argues, if science is about anything, surely it's about getting about at the truth 
about the world and surely we want to say if history is about anything it's about getting at the truth that we can get at about the past so you know let's contrast you know the subject of history uh, where miracles are excluded by definition that's just how we define the subject and on the other hand we have what happened in the past studies where miracles can be discussed and evaluated critically by examining the available evidence. Uh, I know which subject seems uh, much more uh, appealing and interesting and academically open. I think here uh, atheists should be encouraged to follow uh, the thought of the atheist W.V. Quine who said, uh, you know, if I saw indirect explanatory benefit in positing spirits a creator i'd joyfully accord them scientific status too on a par with such avowedly scientific posits as quarks and black holes in other words quine is here saying uh, we really should just ask you know it's all about what's the evidence and what's the best explanation of the evidence so to summarize that first section uh, neo-atheists often attack Christianity by wielding these sort of scientific sounding demands for evidence uh, often of course on the false assumption that Christians haven't got any relevant evidence but they wield these scientific sounding demands for evidence whilst actually rejecting miracles on philosophical a priori that is before looking at the evidence before the experience grounds and that actually is just a massive double standard in their approach to this topic the so-called jesus of history is actually we could say a jesus of faith in various a priori constraints upon what history can be and actually there's no good reason why the so-called Christ of faith should not also be the Christ of history if the evidence supports that conclusion. But having criticised the general approach that the New Atheist movement as a whole kind of takes to Jesus, I want to highlight 10 points of agreement as I do at the end of my book Getting at Jesus 10 points of agreement with individual new atheist scholars in what they say about Jesus so first of all point number one a genuine search for truth must be open to the facts rather than making up its mind in advance of looking at the facts uh, so Richard Dawkins says there is objective truth out there and it's our business to find it Christopher Hitchens says objectivity means the search for truth no matter what absolutely Sam Harris says nothing is more sacred than the facts no one therefore should win any points in our discourse for deluding himself the litmus test for reasonableness should be obvious anyone who wants to know how the world is whether in physical or spiritual terms will be open to new evidence absolutely uh, but if you consistently stick with that that means 
not rejecting miracles before you've looked at the evidence, not defining history as a subject where you can't even look at the evidence uh, for miracles and so on. Secondly, miracles are possible and indeed even knowable. So here's Lawrence M. Krauss, a new atheist who's a physicist in the States. He admits that miracles can't be ruled out a priori unless one first you know, absolutely rules out the possibility that God exists. So he comments, a God who can create the laws of nature can presumably also circumvent them at will. So if there's a God, it's possible that there are miracles and we'd have to look at the evidence. While neo-atheists tend to genuflect to Hume's discredited arguments about miracles, new atheist biologist Jerry Coyne admits Hume took it too far. No amount of evidence, it seems, could ever override his conviction that miracles were really the result of fraud, ignorance or misrepresentation. Yet perhaps there are some events where a miracle is more likely than human error or deception. And Coyne recommends approaching the question of miracles with an open mind, stating, it would be a closed mind scientist who would say that miracles are impossible in principle. Third, Christianity makes truth claims that are open to historical investigation. Here's Dawkins again. Uh, he says, did Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? Did he himself come alive again three days after being crucified? There is an answer to every such question, whether or not we can discover it in practice, and it's a strictly scientific answer. It's Victor Stenger uh, saying that physical and historical evidence might have been found for the historical events of the scriptures. He doesn't think there is any, uh, but he's at least admitting that the Bible makes the kind of claim that's open to physical and historical evidence, maybe archaeological evidence and so on. Coyne comments, nothing in science prohibits us, stops us from considering supernatural explanations. If something is supposed to exist in, in a way that has tangible effects on the universe, it falls within the ambit of science and supernatural beings and phenomena can have, in principle, real-world effects. Of course, to accept that claims about the tangible effects of supernatural beings fall within the ambit of science or history uh, doesn't mean denying the relevance of philosophical and theological perspectives on said beings or events. Uh, fourthly, there was a historical Jesus, something that many people doubt and that new atheists often kind of stoke doubts about this. Nevertheless, Dawkins acknowledges Jesus existed. Sam Harris writes of Jesus, the Buddha, Lao Tse and the other saints and sages of history. Lawrence Krauss admits that Jesus was a real historical person. Again, Krauss says, if you asked me, is the weight of historical evidence such that Jesus was a real historical figure, I would say, 
the weight of historical evidence is that Jesus was a historical figure. I do not dispute that the weight of historical evidence suggests that he was a real person. Well, as Bart Ehrman, uh, the sceptical New Testament scholar, says, uh, whether we like it or not, Jesus certainly existed. Uh, indeed, he's said that we have more evidence for Jesus than we have for almost anybody from his time period. Fifthly, the historical Jesus hasn't been obscured by pagan mythology. As Krauss concedes, one may argue that these connections that people sometimes try and draw between Jesus and pagan myths, he says, are spurious, and I'm willing to accept that, that these connections are spurious. Six, that the New Testament writers wrote what they honestly believed to be the truth about Jesus. They may have been mistaken, but they were honestly reporting what they honestly believed. So according to Michel Onfray, uh, he says that Mark, L Matthew, Luke and John did not knowingly deceive. Neither did Paul. They said what they believed was true and believed that what they said was true. Clearly, they believed what they wrote, says Onfray. Seventh, that Jesus did think he was divine. So Hitchens acknowledged that Jesus, quote, reportedly believed himself, at least some of the time, to be God or the Son of God. And Krauss actually states that Jesus, quote, had delusions of being God. See, there Krauss is saying uh, Jesus was wrong about that, that was a delusion, but he admits that, that Jesus did have that thought about himself, that he was divine. This, of course, raises uh, a very famous argument, made particularly famous by uh, the author C.S. Lewis in some of his apologetical writings, uh, what's come to be known uh, as the trilemma argument for the divinity of Jesus of given that Jesus claimed divinity, uh, was that claim true or false? If it was true, then he was and he is Lord. If it was false, then there are only a couple of reasons why it, he had that uh, false claim. Maybe he didn't believe it. Maybe he was lying. Uh, he was a false pretender. Uh, he was kind of deceiving people or attempting to do so. On the other hand, maybe he sincerely did believe it, but was wrong about that, in which case uh, that's a, a very big divide between uh, his reality and his self-image, uh, which is uh, a good measure of uh, lunacy. So that's interesting a comment to the new atheists, some of them to admit that Jesus claimed divinity or thought that he was divine. But others will eighthly uh, admit that Jesus was neither a lunatic nor a liar. So Harris, Sam Harris, records realising that Jesus, the Buddha, Lao Tzu and the other saints and sages of history had not all been epileptics, schizophrenics or frauds. So Harris bears witness to Jesus's goodness and wisdom by grouping him together with the other saints and sages of history. Moreover, he repudiates any dismissal of those saints and sages, including Jesus, as 
just dismissing them as epileptics, schizophrenics or, or frauds. On the one hand, Richard Dawkins admits that there, there's no evidence that Jesus himself was barking mad. On the other hand, Dawkins says we know enough about Jesus to conclude that he, quote, was a great moral teacher. Which is, of course, the one thing that, in the way that C.S. Lewis frames this argument, he's particularly keen to show people is something that it doesn't make sense to say, that Jesus was nothing but a great moral teacher. Dawkins' risible attempt to suggest that Jesus was just uh, honestly mistaken, as he says in The God Delusion, about his divinity, that, that attempt to get around the lunatic liar lord argument really, I think, constitutes a backhanded compliment to that trilemma argument for the truth of Jesus's exalted claims. As Stephen T. Davis, a Christian philosopher, says, like, it's not easy to see how any sane religious first century Jew could sincerely but mistakenly hold the belief, I am divine, uh, without being uh, a lunatic, you know. As uh, the British Reverend Nicky Gumbel, who's the, the guy behind the Alpha Course, if any of you know about that, that introduction to Christianity course, the Alpha Course, uh, Nicky Gumbel summarises the irony of the God delusion like this. He says, the irony of the God delusion is that Dawkins says that all Christians are deluded because they believe there's a God. That's the God delusion. Uh, but that Jesus was not deluded, even though he thought he was God. He's just sincerely mistaken, you know. As Mike King summarises uh, the conclusion here, uh, anyone honestly mistaken in such a way would inevitably be considered insane. But why should uh, Dawkins and Al not be content to simply dismiss Jesus as mad uh, or bad? We saw that one of the, the new atheists I quoted did say, you know, Jesus was deluded. Why isn't Dawkins content to take that route? Why, why go for this straw man of a of a an attempt at a, an additional get out clause here? Well, quite clearly, it's because even a rudimentary flick through Jesus's life demonstrates these possibilities uh, to be untenable. Ninthly, uh, Jesus was executed by crucifixion. So, Coin again states Jesus was crucified ending everyone's hope of glory. As Charles Foster summarises the evidence, the, the overwhelming conclusion of the mainstream literature, even that written by virulent opponents of Christianity, is that Jesus did indeed die on the cross. And crucifixion in their culture was a very embarrassing and scandalous thing, not something that people would have just made up about someone, particularly their uh, messiah figure, particularly a messiah figure that they were going to claim was divine. So as Ehrman again says, it's highly improbable that the earliest Palestinian Jewish followers of Jesus would have made up the claim that the messiah was crucified. Tenth, some people believed they met Jesus alive after his death. 
here's Krauss again who allows in fact the fact that people may have seen Jesus walking after his death if they did if they report that I'm willing to accept their belief that they did and of course uh, many uh, independent uh, reports do report that Krauss is is willing to accept that people believed that they saw uh, a Jesus alive after his death as Jonathan Kendall says that numerous individuals including Jesus's closest disciples had experiences sub subsequent to the crucifixion that led them to conclude that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead is a fact accepted by essentially all New Testament scholars even those that are the most skeptical of Christianity and of the resurrection itself so here are 10 points of agreement that we can piece together from statements made uh, individually by new atheists there's no new atheist who's saying all of these things uh, but individually various new atheists will admit one or more of these 10 points of agreement uh, that a genuine search for truth must be open to the facts that miracles are possible and knowable that Christianity makes truth claims that are open to historical investigation that there was a historical Jesus that the historical Jesus has not been obscured by pagan myth that the New Testament writers wrote what they honestly believed to be the truth about Jesus that Jesus did think he was divine that Jesus wasn't a lunatic or a liar that Jesus was executed by crucifixion and that some people believed they met Jesus alive again after his death now despite the dogmatic extreme skepticism about the historical Jesus that characterizes the new atheist movement as a whole individual neo-atheists admit points of historical method or historical data that taken together jointly constitute really the core elements in the case for thinking that the historical Jesus is indeed the figure that Christianity takes him to be I find that absolutely fascinating these uh, neo-atheist concessions to reality if you like should at the very least I think at the very least encourage us to agree with this quotation from Professor Di Howell Howard Marshall when he says that the historian must be open to the significance of Jesus which is suggested to them by the evidence and that significance may be expressed in terms of the supernatural without the historian feeling that they've sacrificed their intellect.